So, K Alaska's to mark number 454. We're happy to do that. Use that later in our service this evening, certainly. And how wonderful it is that you and I could come together on an afternoon such as this one to give appreciation to an offering of our heartfelt worship unto God. As always, we're so thankful for our membership at Pippin, but so thankful are we as well for the host of visitors who again have come our way. And we hope that all of us can participate in this service in such a way that not only will God be glorified, but that we will be blessed and benefited as well. We come tonight to a lesson that, as you can see on the slide, is entitled Questions and Answers. And if uh, perhaps you're visiting with us this evening, it may well be that this will be unfamiliar to you, at least in format. I'd like to take just a moment and share with you what we typically do here at Pippin, on average about once a month. There is a box in the foyer out there that has in it a little uh, knob on top, and individuals have the opportunity to place questions in that box. They can do so anonymously. They don't have to sign their name, don't have to give any indication of who it is. But then we devote a, a Sunday night service on occasion to the answering of those questions. Quite frankly, it gives an opportunity for, for you to determine the subjects we discuss in, in, in that particular lesson. And so tonight we have a series of questions that have been posed and asked, and we'll take the next few moments and give our attention to the answering of those questions, things related to the Word of God. It is for that reason this opening slide is basically a statement on my part that reiterates some of what I just said. It gives you the opportunity to specifically pose a question that relates, of course, to some aspect of the Bible, and then we will attempt to use the Bible as it relates to the answering of that question. Tonight, the questions will begin with this one. Typically, what I like to do is actually read verbatim the question that has been asked, and here is the first one for the evening. There is a person who is supposed to be a member of the church who has been posting on social media that any congregation of the Lord's church that uses multiple cups when observing the Lord's Supper is sinning. I don't think so, but I would like to know what, if anything, the Bible teaches concerning this. The idea, of course, is one that's easy to appreciate, isn't it? When you and I observe the Lord's Supper, as shall be done later this evening, and as was done this morning, we know that there are individual communion cups that we utilize, and each person takes one of them, partakes of that. The person who wrote this question knows of a friend, or at least someone, who asserts that that is wrong. That it is not consistent with the Bible to partake of the Lord's Supper, the fruit of the vine part at least, using individual communion cups. You may notice on that slide I've put together a, a few initial thoughts that help to phrase a little bit of the significance that that question has presented over the years. I suppose, depending on the degree of your background, or at least what knowledge you might have of this, this could be a whole new subject for you. But I could at least take a moment and say, this subject has been one that has divided congregations in the past. There are congregations for which there are individuals, elders, and preachers of those that will make a statement somewhat like what you'll see on that slide. In fact, I simply would like to quote to you. In 1994, there was a debate on this subject, and there had been many debates in years previous on the very same subject. This particular debate 
was the Batty Thrasher Donahue debate. And I've simply quoted one of the statements out of that debate. One of the individuals made this assertion during the course of that debate. The Scriptures teach that an assembly of the Church of Christ for the communion must use one cup, that is to say, one drinking vessel, in the distribution of the fruit of the vine. Now that person, the gentleman who made that assertion, would claim we erred this morning in the way we partook of the Lord's Supper. And so strongly would that person's claim be that he would claim we are bound for hell because of it. So the person who asked this question certainly asked a very appropriate one, but our interest is not what someone may say about it. Take your Bible and let's look at some verses, some passages in Scripture that will help us approach an answer to a question like this one. In fact, I would in fact go ahead and ask you to notice there are three principal texts we'll begin with. And all three relate to the Lord's initial institution of the Lord's Supper. Let's begin in Matthew 26, verse number 26. That again is Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now before we leave that text, I will at least invite you to notice while you have your place located there, but in verse number 27 of that passage we just read, the text did say, and he took the cup. You may take note that is singular. It is singular in English. It is singular in Greek. So there we do seemingly have reference to a cup, one cup. Let's look at Mark's version. In Mark 14, as you can see on the slide, we'll start in verse 22. Mark 14, 22. This will sound very familiar since it borrows or at least follows much of the reading in Matthew. But it says, And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily, I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. One more time, at least, with respect to the fruit of the vine portion of the Lord's Supper, verse 23 pointed out, He took the cup, singular, both in English and in Greek. Now, as we come to Luke's account in Luke 22, beginning in verse number 19, here again we will notice a little bit different reading. Luke 22, verse number 19. It says, And he took bread, and gave thanks, and brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Three times we now notice in Luke's account, the text says in verse number 20 that the cup after supper, singular. 
at this point, do these individuals then that have made the claim that I mentioned earlier, do they in fact have it correct? In each of the instances, both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the reference is very clear. Jesus made reference to a cup, the cup, one cup. Well, let me quickly invite you to appreciate that the basic character of what is used as the basis for the assertion is the passages we've just noted. Doesn't it say that there was but one cup? And so shouldn't it be the case that we prepare a single cup and everybody has to drink out of the same one? Now, there are congregations that do this. In fact, in some years past, it was an exceedingly strong assertion and portion over much of the country. At least in the middle section, like Missouri, Arkansas, northern Texas, it is a little bit less prominent, at least in this area at the moment, but you still can find some congregations that are very strongly considerate of this particular thought. Let's get to our answer. So far we've read the passages, but as you and I come to the bottom, you can see four words which I would like to rather strongly assert. The claim that these well-intentioned brothers have made is just not right. The references may include such that it refers to one cup or a cup. The cup, no question about that. The question comes, what did the Lord mean as He referred to the cup? When it says He took the cup, what did He do with it? What is it that He was referencing? The next slide will lead us into more of a consideration of that. I read the verses. May I suggest we reflect upon what we just read? And by that I mean, let us use the text itself to appreciate what it is that Jesus had in mind as He took this entity, as He used it to express to those disciples on that occasion. And may I say that we begin with Luke's account. In Luke 22, jump back up to verse 17 and notice as we begin reading a few of the features and the descriptions it says, He took the cup, notice again, there it's singular, and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Whatever it was the Lord took, and might we appreciate, we already have an easy sense that when He took this cup and then He made the words or the references that they were to divide it. Let's face it, they were not dividing the literal container that the liquid was in. That's kind of absurd, isn't it? We all know that He wasn't giving them orders to divide the container that the liquid was in. What they were doing was dividing the liquid among themselves so that each of them could partake of it. With that in mind, might we also notice there are several other places in the Bible in which the word cup is used in a figurative way to represent what was in the cup. That is to say, the word cup was used to refer not to the vessel, but to the liquid inside it. We'll not turn and read all of them, but in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all of them, we have frequent reference to the situation in which the word cup is used to refer figuratively to liquid contained inside it, or to something that's experienced as a consequence of it. No wonder in that regard... Let us now think pretty carefully about Matthew's version. I think Luke's version has gotten us a good start. 
But let's look at Matthew's version. That's the first one I read. It again says, beginning in verse 27, He, that's Jesus, took the cup. He gave thanks and He gave it to them. Let's pause and ask something. What is it the Lord took? The cup. That's easy enough to answer. What is it He gave thanks for? Was it the container? Or what was in the container? And when it says He gave it to them, was it pertinent that He gave them the container? Or was it pertinent with regard to the liquid in the container? And in case we have any doubt about any of that, look at the next verse. The second word in verse number 28 is critical. May I invite you to emphasize it with me. After he had just taken the cup, given thanks for it, gave it to them to divide among themselves, he then said, for this... That pronoun this is a demonstrative word clearly referring to this cup, what he had just taken, what he had just given thanks for, and what he had just ordered them to divide, or at least to share among themselves. This, he said, is my blood of the New Testament. Now, do you suppose that this, which represents his blood of the New Testament, was the container? Obviously not. The word cup was used in a figurative fashion to refer to its contents. I would state to you this morning, we did take of one cup. It had nothing to do with the number of containers that that liquid was in. So this gentleman has built a straw man. And these who've debated this subject have built up a matter, and the Lord told us what He was referring to when He used the word cup. He was referring to the fruit of the vine. He was referring to the liquid contained in those actual containers. And you and I, as we partook of that fruit of the vine, we were partaking of this, which represented His blood. It is for that reason, you'll notice on the bottom, in some sense I've saved one of the strongest references to this until last. In 1 Corinthians 10, we have another reference to the Lord's Supper, and in particular to both the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine component of it. But there's something rather fascinating about what the Holy Spirit through Paul has preserved for us. Would you turn in 1 Corinthians 10? Allow me to begin reading in verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Now at this point, look back to verse 16 with me. That which Paul stated for us now takes the following form. If I may again read the question or read this statement that he made. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That's a reference to the fruit of the vine component of the Lord's Supper. But isn't it interesting the terminology that Paul used? Let's piece it together. There was a church in Corinth. That congregation was assembling as a part of their worship. They were partaking of the Lord's Supper. That, of course, is something you and I consider that we need to do as well. But did you notice the pronoun that Paul used? The cup of blessing which 
we bless. He didn't say which you bless. So as Paul used the word we, he's including himself in this. Now the question comes, would it have been possible for them to be partaking of the same cup, literal container? The church at Corinth was obviously in Corinth. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? Chapter 16 tells us. If you turn over to chapter 16, verse 8, we notice something about the environs, and it says, But I will tarry at Ephesus until the Pentecost. My friend Paul was at Ephesus, upwards of 300 miles from Corinth. Was he partaking of the same container the Corinthians were? The answer is obvious. He was not partaking of the same literal container, but he was partaking of the same cup. So you and I today, we need not worry about it being wrong for us to have multiple containers. That's perfectly consistent with the teaching of the Bible. It's not the thing to which the Lord was referring. He was referring to its contents, not the container. I might even suggest, as we come to the bottom of that slide, that as we then have these references to the fruit of the vine component of the Lord's Supper and the nature of the Lord's usage of the word cup, isn't it a sweet and interesting thing how strongly that matter is that we appreciate just how grand and how great that is? I would offer that that same context in 1 Corinthians really in the next chapter, extends our understanding somewhat. I would like you to note the following language. Some of the most well-known verses as it relates to this actually comes in chapter 11. Let me start reading in verse number 25, if I might. Chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, verse 25. After the same manner also, he took the cup. Notice again, singular, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament. In my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Did you notice something? The Lord took the cup. But then verse number 25, He said, as oft as you drink it. Do you drink the container or do you drink the liquid that's in it? That's an obvious answer, isn't it? We don't drink the container. The word cup, is a figurative word. Sometimes it's called a metonymous word that refers to what's inside it. The next verse even strengthens it. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, we are commanded to drink the cup. But none of us actually ingest the cup. We ingest what's inside it. And may I suggest to you, I think we've addressed our first question of the evening. It is not wrong to use multiple containers when you appreciate the fact that that liquid in it is representative of the blood of Christ, and all Christians everywhere are able to partake of that one cup when they do so faithfully and consistent with the teaching of the Word of God. No wonder then as we close that slide, we close our first question, it is not at all inappropriate to use multiple containers then. And all of that divisiveness and all of those choices that brethren made in years gone by that caused so much strife and division in the church, it was not only needless, it was in many cases very wrongly approached. I would say that you and I can now note this. 
It would not be wrong if a congregation were to choose to use a single container to distribute the fruit of the vine. That would be their choice. But it would be wrong for them to try to bind that choice on you and me and all other congregations everywhere else because clearly that's not the thrust and that's not the demand of the, of the original language. On to question two. Question number two reads as follows. This same person says that a Christian who celebrates Christmas with their family is sinning. Again, does the Bible teach this? I know that we aren't in the Christmas season, but nonetheless, it's a good question. Is it inappropriate? Is it inconsistent with the Word of God? Is it inconsistent with the Bible for a Christian to have anything to do with a celebration in any degree of Christmas? You can see on the slide, I would invite you to at least reflect on some basic truths. The first one certainly would be this one. You and I know that Christmas is that season of the year that men have chosen, that cultures have chosen, to give some reflective thought to the birth of Jesus Christ. But now we do need to keep in mind very strongly the following series of ideas. Does the Bible teach that Jesus was born on December the 25th? It does not. In fact, as you can see on the slide, the biblical evidence is very, very strong that Jesus was not born even in the month we'd call December. Piece together very quickly some, some ideas that points us to a different time of year in which our Savior most likely was born. Now, you and I know the Bible nowhere comes out and says, Jesus was born in this month on this day. It just doesn't say that anywhere. But there are references that you and I can use to at least draw some likely conclusions. And it begins like this. In Luke chapter 1, there are a couple of verses that do, do provide us with some assistance. Could I ask you to notice verse 26? As far as timing, as far as chronology, we immediately learn the following. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Naz Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph. But the critical matter there, at least for us at the moment, it was the sixth month. The sixth month of what? Well, if you go back to the previous couple of verses, it was the sixth month of Elizabeth's of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Remember, she was the mother of John the Baptist, and in the sixth month of her pregnancy, this angel Gabriel then delivered a message, a strong and powerful message, to a virgin girl named Mary. Now, among other things, that directly tells us John the Baptist, at least in terms of physical life on earth, was six months older than Jesus. Well, that's fine. That would mean, by the way, that if we can determine about the time of year that John the Baptist was born, we will likely be able to easily figure out roughly at least when Jesus was born. Thankfully, Luke chapter 1 gives us a clue. Would you notice in Luke chapter 1, verse number 5? Luke 1, verse 5. It says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias 
of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. At that time, you and I remember that they were barren. Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children. But we notice something about the character of Zacharias. Did you notice? We would easily perhaps almost read past it, but it says that he was of the course of Abiah. I wonder what that means. If you turn back with me to 1 Chronicles 24, we will have a sense of what that means. 1 Chronicles 24. We again will not read nearly all of that chapter, but could I at least point this out to you? In that chapter, namely 1 Chronicles 24, we have a reference to the way in which the priesthood was put in place by King David in the days of the Old Testament era. And what you notice is, starting in about verses 5 and 6 of that chapter, that there was a division by lot of the various priests and the order that they were to serve in the temple. Beginning in verse 7, it says, And the first lot came forth to Jehoiarib, the second to Jediah, the third to Harim, the fourth to Seorim, the fifth to Malchijah, the sixth to Majamin, the seventh to Hakaz, the eighth to Abijah. I'm going to stop at that point. It goes on to list 24 courses, but the eighth one is all that we need because notice it's Abijah. And yet in Luke 1, verse number 5, it says that Zacharias was of the course of Abijah. Abijah. In other words, it was the eighth lot that was descriptive of the service of Zechariah as priest. Now the next thing we might notice in 1 Chronicles 24 is when did the service of these priests begin? That chapter unfolds for us. It began at the Passover season. So the week of Passover, the first the, the priest who had the first lot would serve for that week. Then the next week, the next one would serve. And the third week, the third one would serve, and so on. Well, that means the eighth one would serve during the eighth week after the Passover season. Putting those together, you and I know the Passover season, which occurred in their first month of the year, occurred in, for us, what would be typically April. April. So if you count eight weeks forward from there, you would at least have to be in late May or early June. So I'd submit to you that Zechariah was serving as priest about the week of late May or early June. Now that's when, as this chapter unfolds it, he was given the message, you and your wife are going to have a baby. So he went back home. She probably became pregnant rather soon thereafter. Let's just suppose perhaps late June. We can now count nine months forward. Now tell us when John the Baptist was born. John apparently would have been born sometime in March. So now if we go six months later, which would have been when Jesus was born, it would seem likely the Lord would have been born in late September or early October, but not December. There's no biblical evidence that even would have placed the birth of our Lord at about that time. Remember, the shepherds were abiding in the field at night, and it would have been cold then. You wouldn't have expected the shepherds to be abiding in the field at night in December. It just doesn't fit for December. The evidence seems to point us more towards September or early October. I would suggest then in all of that, 
there are a number of other things about Christmas which are not fully consistent with the Bible. The nativity scene that typically is put before us, we see Joseph and Mary and they arrive at Bethlehem and they come to the inn and there's no room for them and they end up going into a stable and Jesus is born basically in a stable. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, it says, And so it was that while they were there, that's again in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, there is that word inn, but you might be interested to know in the original language, that word really is, quite frankly, far more often translated differently than in. In so many of the other places in the Bible where that word appears, it's typically translated guest chamber. Far more likely is the situation that when Joseph and Mary came to Bethlehem, remember, his family lived there. They likely stayed with family. More than likely. And as they did so, again, that would be more consistent with the word in as they were in that guest chamber, you then appreciate that Jesus was born in those circumstances and in that setting. But many of the particulars of the traditional nativity story just don't match so well to the biblical text. I would quickly thus allow us to close that particular slide like this. It would be wrong if you and I were to celebrate Christmas by holding it up as a biblically authorized matter and something that the Bible encourages upon us. So, for example, it would not be good for you and me to put a nativity scene in our yard and do that with these three wise men. The Bible doesn't say there was three wise men. And in fact, it doesn't even say the wise men were present at the birth of Jesus. You may recall in Matthew chapter 2, Herod, you remember, after he'd seen this, after the star had been seen, and those shepherds came. Notice it says shepherds. The wise men came after Jesus was upwards of two years old. That's a very different scenario, isn't it? The wise men weren't even present at his birth. Point is, we would not want to give others the impression that that's what the Bible teaches. We wouldn't want to assert for them that we appreciate that that's what the Bible teaches because it doesn't. Now the question, if a family wishes to celebrate Christmas not religiously, but just as a time to be together with one another, to exchange gifts, to share a meal, to enjoy time together like that, that has nothing to do with a religious exercise. It has nothing to do with trying to assert the Bible teaches that. There would be nothing wrong with that. Later on in Romans 14, Paul even has words that sound like this. Romans 14, verse number 5. It says, "...one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike." Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. It is important that we never take liberties with the Word of God and try to teach from various things what the Bible doesn't. But you'll notice there, even as Paul made reference to one day, when you and I are convinced 
again, the Bible doesn't assert that we're using this religiously. But when we get together with our family and exchange gifts and put up a tree, we aren't doing anything that otherwise makes a recourse to the birth of Christ. There isn't anything wrong with celebrating Christmas that way. On to question three. Our third question of the evening reads like this. What does the Bible say about church membership? That's a very short question. What does the Bible say about church membership? This too has been a question of some discussion over the years. I do think, as we shall shortly see, the Word of God is very direct, and it certainly has some matters that lead us to an overwhelming conclusion. And it all begins as we perhaps appreciate this. The Word of God does employ the word church in two very clear ways. One way is a reference to the universal church. That is to say, the church wherever it may exist. And it is that reference that occurred in Matthew 16, 18, for example, when Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But may I say that there's also a very different recognition in which you notice local usage. That is to say, the reference to a group of believers in a certain place. You and I know well there are lots of these references in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 5.11, the church at Jerusalem. That was a congregation of the Lord's people that met in the city of Jerusalem. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, the church of God at Corinth. That was the local saints meeting, of course, in the city of Corinth. As we come to the book of Revelation, we know there are seven churches of Asia. The church at Ephesus, the church at Sardis, the church at Smyrna, the church at Pergamos, the church at Thyatira, the church at Philadelphia, and the church at Laodicea. So those were individual congregations of the Lord's people that met in those respective places and cities. At this point, notice where that leads us. It is the case, and it is the will of God, of course, that these individual congregations, wherever they may be, that they follow the same doctrine, that they are bound in the, in the nature of Christ Jesus carefully and powerfully. For that reason, Acts 9, verse 26, go ahead and notice the statement that's there made. Acts chapter 9, verse 26, this is right after Saul's conversion. I think it's rather significant what is said. It says, And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. So here was a man who previously had persecuted the church. He had now been baptized, but it says when he came to Jerusalem, it was his desire, his wish to join himself, as that verse reads it, to the disciples. He wanted to be considered, along with their work, to be a part, if you please. But let's read even further than that, because come with me to the bottom of that slide. May I suggest to you that there are certain commandments, certain descriptions of the New Testament, which make no sense 
unless the concept of church membership is understood and at least strongly considered. Let me ask you to think about just a few of them. In a given congregation, for instance, we all know that there are individual obligations and responsibilities, but one of them is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is. Now may I ask, so there is a commandment that is, of course, given to individual Christians. Is there anybody that would have the opportunity, and yea, the obligation, to make a dress concerning that? Consider the elders of a given congregation. Here are men who have been entrusted with the oversight of that congregation. Don't you think it's rather evident that they need to know who is in their flock? Because they need to be able to go to someone and say, you've missed three Sundays in a row. Are you sick? Is there a problem? Is there some issue that we can help you with? We're concerned about your spiritual well-being. May I suggest elders have got to know who is in their flock. Look at another one. Everybody is commanded as Christians to give on the first day of the week as he or she has been prospered. An elder would have the right in consideration of someone's gift. We notice you gave 50 cents on each of the last eight weeks. Hmm. But yet you bought a Cadillac the other day. And not only that, you bought a brand new $45,000 tractor and you bought a new house. Something looks out of order here. Elders would have the right to do this because our giving is that important. But if they don't know who's in their flock, how could they ever make any such approaches to this? Look at another one. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we're commanded to encourage each other. Who are we supposed to encourage? Seemingly, that has reference to people who are part of the same flock we are. My brothers and sisters locally are those whom I'm supposed to encourage. And of course, we, in an attitude of brotherly love, desire, of course, to always do this. But doesn't it perhaps lead us to the last one, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6? This one's a negative one, but how strongly it's worded. Withdraw yourself from every brother that walks disorderly. So who are we supposed to withdraw from? Surely it's got to be somebody who is a part of the congregation that I am, for that's who I'm supposed to withdraw from. I can't withdraw from somebody who is not a part of the same thing I'm a part of. Church membership, at least so far, has been discussed in these ways. I use the top of this next slide to at least reinforce some of that. What we've seen so far is that it is right for an individual to let it be known to the elders and to a particular congregation, I want to be a part of this local congregation. I want to not only worship with you, I want to be recognized as a part of this work. And I want to contribute to this work. You'll notice that so far that idea at least is consistent with all of the things that at least to this point we've discussed. In terms of elders, consider for just a moment the position that an elder would be in if this were not the case. I mentioned a moment ago, an elder approaches a person and said, you hadn't been at services in a month and a half. 
Is there a problem? No, your faithfulness and attendance is certainly not evident. If there were no such thing as church membership, this person would say, I'm not a member of your congregation. You don't have any right to say anything to me about this. I'll attend when I want to, and there's nothing you can say about it. Well, that certainly flies in the face of Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling. Look at Hebrews 13.17. Speaking about elders and the obligation that is specifically given to them, the text in that place reads as follows. Obey them that have the rule over you. You and I are told as individual Christians to be submissive to those elders, to obey them in all matters, of course, of expediency. Now, they don't have any authority to overrule the Word of God, but as they make decisions of judgment, we're commanded to obey them. And certainly it would not be our capability of saying, well, you don't have any authority over me. I'm not a member of your congregation. I just attend. You'll notice that inconsistency is not something that would be consistent with the Word of God. And so, let's close that slide like this. What might be some reasons that you can think of why some people have had a problem with the concept of church membership? At least those that have made any statements at least lead one to think it might be what I have at the bottom of that slide. They don't want to be held accountable. I want to be able to attend when I want to. I'll give however much I want to, and there's nothing that anybody can say about it. Not only that, I'll only be involved to the extent I want to be. In other words, at least many times it would seem that those who have a problem with it are such that they want to be somewhat cowboy or renegade Christians. I'll just float around and do what I want without any accountability to anybody. But you'll notice elders were told to feed the flock. Elders are thus told there is a flock over which they rule. They have to know who's in their flock. It doesn't make a lot of sense to think a shepherd doesn't know what sheep is in his flock. Well, that same concept, of course, applies to the elder. As we come near the close of our lesson tonight, three questions have been those that have been on our radar. And one by one, as we've looked at each of them, we've highlighted the sweetness of the Word of God as a guide for those things that would allow us to be pleasing unto God. Our questions have invited us to consider the church, to consider the Lord's Supper, and even to consider Christmas. But as we have done all of that, aren't we thankful for verses like 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And how lovely it is that we can use it to guide our thinking and our actions and our behavior in such a way that we can live pleasingly unto God. This evening, if there would be anyone in the audience whose life is not as it ought to be, it could be that you have never become a Christian. It could be, though, that you know what you need to do. As you visualize in your mind the old rugged cross. There was one hanging on it, and he died, not for himself, but he died for you, and he died for me. That blood that he shed was to cleanse my sins and yours, and that blood makes possible for you and me the hope of heaven. But he leaves us the choice of whether we want to avail ourselves of the power of that blood or not. 
We do that when we become a Christian. If you would believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess the greatness of His name as the Son of God, and be baptized, He will add you to His church. He'll write your name in the book of life. And if you'll live faithfully till death, heaven will be yours. But if you have gone astray, you once knew the sweetness of the Christian life, but you have allowed the devil to influence you, and you've begun to behave in ways that have brought shame and reproach upon the church, you need to make that right. You need to make confession of those things and repent of them. And 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9 tells us that if you'll do that, we'll be happy to pray to God and He'll forgive you. Tonight, if we could be of help in either of these ways, we'll use this song of encouragement as a time to encourage and invite. And would you not come while together we stand and while we sing?